just, I, I'm so impressed with how practical James is, and an awful lot of what he's been saying right from chapter one is, you know what, you need to accept the reality of what's going on and figure out how you are to make the best of it. He reminded us in chapter one that everything that happens is a gift from God. It's an opportunity. Our obligation is to make responsible choices responding to what God is doing. He goes on into talking about pride and how that destroys us, anger, how that gets in the way of what God wants to do, and all these things. Now, as we come to chapter 5, he plops this thing into the middle where he's blasting rich people. And it just seems kind of weird because it doesn't flow in some ways with what he's been saying. And not only that, James was writing to Jewish Christians, and they weren't rich. So why are you harping on poor people about these lousy rich people and what their problem is? Um, and I think we'll see as we go through um, these first 11 verses this morning, it actually fits in perfectly with what James has been saying, um, as you'll see. But he starts out with this rant against the rich people. And he's not speaking to them, he's more speaking about them, as we will see. Now, the problem for us is we are rich people. Compared to most of the world, every one of us is rich. And so there are certainly some lessons to learn here, but you're going to see the major point as he gets into this later part of the passage. And remember, I mean, look at this. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Doesn't that cheer you up? <laughs> it's like... His attitude, something was, he, you know, this had to have been on the day when James paid his bills. He's just like, this is, you guys are going to get it. You guys are, are going to be nailed. Now, it's important to remember when we were back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, Paul makes it clear there that there's nothing wrong with being rich. Um, but there are wrong things that can happen to people who are rich and then either get what they got the wrong way or, or care too much about it or don't use it correctly. As he goes on, after he says, the love of money is the root of all evil, so it's a heart issue. But then he goes on later in that chapter in 1 Timothy 6, and he says, so here's the deal, rich people. He said, when you get rich, don't set your heart on your riches. Don't get too attached to it. Don't live for it. Don't let it control you. And then he says, if God's made you rich, he wants you to enjoy it. So don't be afraid to enjoy it. Don't be a miser. But he said, also remember to share. And so Paul gives kind of a balanced approach to, to wealth and, and a good attitude towards it. And we're going to see James stressing some of those same kinds of potential abuses. Here's what can happen to people when they're rich. And here are things that can happen to all of us. We can all see this kind of influence creep into our lives. So he says, first of all, in verse 3, your gold and silver are corrupted, corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. This first thing is a reference to the fact that Sometimes when people have a lot, they begin to hoard it. They don't use it, they don't enjoy it, they don't share it, they don't invest it. 
They just hoard it. And you might not be in a position to do that with money, but let's face it, we all have stuff that we don't need. We all have stuff that we don't use and someone else could use it. But you just never know when you're going to use it, right? I, the other day I was fixing some faucets in, in our house and, and I didn't have a seat wrench and the valve seat wrench. So I went to the store and picked one up and as I was looking for a screwdriver or something, I found two other seat wrenches that I already had and I don't replace that many valve seats. But we get so much stuff, we don't even know where it is or what we have and what we don't have. We have clothes we don't wear, we have tools we don't use, we have other things that just pile up. And so, and it, it's kind of like uh, Jesus told the parable in Luke 12 about a guy who was really rich. And he just started getting more and more and more stuff. And so he goes, oh man, I have a problem. He said, I better build bigger barns. I need more. I need a bigger house and a three-car, four-car, five-car garage because I just have a lot of stuff. The option never occurred to him Maybe I could share some of this stuff, or maybe I'm buying too much stuff, but it's like, no, I'm going to build bigger barns. And Jesus said that the Lord would say to that guy, you idiot, tonight your life is required of you. It's going to be all over right now, and what good is all this stuff that's rotting in your brand new barns? And I think for all of us, we, we need to, and, and maybe it's because we're insecure or afraid. We don't know if God's going to take care of us or not. So we feel like we have to just be ready just in case. My father was someone who was like that. And it was because of the mental problems that he had as a schizophrenic. But he piled up entire drums full of beans and rice and that kind of stuff. I mean, he was ready. Forget surviving the tribulation. You could have lived through the millennium on the stuff that my dad collected. <laughs> And when he died, I had to throw it all out. You know, it was no good anymore. You couldn't really eat it. But in different ways, a lot of us do that. We start to accumulate, and we don't recognize. When we go to somebody's house where everything's really clean and simple, we go, wow, that's nice. For me, when I see someone's desk where you can actually see wood on it, I'm like, oh, that sounds good. But, you know, this week I was spending, I was going through my files I'm amazed at some of the stuff I saved. There's some cool stuff in there, notes that people wrote me 30 years ago that are still mean a lot to me, but I could hardly find them because of all the things I saved that mean nothing to me, you know, that I can't even read the signature. I don't even know who sent it to me. Or notes that, of people telling me how great I am who later they turned on me and thrashed me to everyone I know. It's like, why am I saving this? But he's going, here's a problem with wealth. It doesn't get better when you get more. A point comes to where it just begins to, as Jesus said, moth and rust corrupt and thieves break in and steal. Don't be someone who just creates piles of stuff, who just tries to get more and more. That's not why God gives you riches. It's an opportunity to share. And then secondly, in verse 4, he says, Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. He says, people that worked for you, you ripped them off, you took advantage of them, you didn't pay them what you could have. 
Now, for all of us, what do we think someone should be paid if they do work for us? As little as possible, right? You get estimates, you take the cheapest. You hear of somebody who works a little less. Oh, you might be ranting and raving about illegal aliens, but hey, if they'll do your work cheaper than somebody else, you look the other way and go, well, you know, that's the way it is. And he was saying, the problem with greed is that for you to win, somebody else has to lose. To some degree, it becomes a zero-sum game. And, and so it, it's like, and in the discussion questions for the home fellowships, I talk about get-rich-quick schemes a little bit. And everybody wants to get rich quick. But if you're going to get rich quick, it means somebody else gets poor quick. And so he's saying, people deserve, I mean, how about blessing people a little bit? Don't feel like it always has to be you that gets the best end of the bargain. Don't rip people off just because you can get away with it and think, oh boy, I, did I get a good deal. When you sell something, don't try to get the most possible. When you buy something, don't try to get it as cheap as possible. Share the wealth a little bit. Don't be so stingy. Sometimes when I go on missions trips and I'm over in other countries where they're dirt poor, I get so frustrated with, and sorry if this is you, but the shoe fits wear it, who like go to these countries and they're like bargaining for an hour to try to lower the price of a belt from $1 to 50 cents. And, the, and it's like, oh, you know. And people, and I just go, and how much is that? Boom, I pay it every time. I know they think I'm stupid. I know they think I'm a sucker. And everybody who sees me do that, they go, Dave, they expect you to bargain. They lose respect for you if you don't bargain. You know what? I don't care. I can afford to pay $5 for a fake leather belt. And for them, if they're blessed and they feel like this was their lucky day, awesome. I'm glad to help. You don't have to just look for the cheapest deal possible. Now, I think of this whenever I go to a restaurant. because, And I happen to think that the restaurant industry is horrible the way they you know, pay people peanuts, and then they have to get their pay out of tips. I think it's a bad system. Most other countries in the world don't do it that way. However, that's just the way it is. So for me, I'm thinking, for somebody to, to wait on me, now, if they're just waiting on me, I'm a pretty easy person to deal with. But sometimes other people I eat with want things cooked differently. They want to hear a description of everything on the menu. They want to know all the ingredients that are there. They want to, and I just think, you know what? I'm going to make this worth your while. And I don't sit there and pull out a calculator and go, okay, I have to give 15%. I want people to be surprised that, wow, that was, that was a generous tip. Because honestly, it's on my credit card or something. I'm not going to notice. If I just skipped dessert, it would give somebody a nice, generous tip. But why do we feel like, oh, no, I can't do that? Hey, if people are underpaid and you help them, encourage them for working hard. Encourage them for doing a good job and helping you out. Share the wealth a little. He's going, man, there are some people who have so much, and yet they're taking from those who don't have much so that they can even have more even though they don't need it. And then he goes on and he says, uh, and by the way, he says, uh, he said, the voice of those who are crying at you know, their expense for you, they've reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. Just a point of 
interest. That word there, Sabbath, notice how it's spelled funny compared, normally Sabbath is spelled S-A-B-B-A-T-H, and in this case it's S-A-B-B-A-O-T-H. It's a totally different word than what we refer to as the Sabbath, meaning it, the Sabbath means rest. It's you know one day a week that you take off. Um, this is a transliteration of a Greek word that means armies or hosts, lots of people. So all he's saying is God's the real Lord of everyone. He's the Lord of hosts, and he hears what's going on. He sees when you stiff that waitress. He sees when you don't pay that person who works on your house. He sees when you try to squeeze them for every last dime. And he hears when they go home and they don't have enough and they're crying and his cries, their cries go out to the Lord of hosts. And so then he goes on and he says, also, um, okay, he says uh, in verse 5, Also, you've lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury. You have fattened your hearts. Major blockage in your arteries, as in a day of slaughter. He's saying, you have more than what's even good for you. You eat more than you need to survive. You own more than what you need to even enjoy. You can't even enjoy a lot of what you have. And you're fattening yourself up, and the day of reckoning is going to come. You have more than what's even a blessing for you. And that's the way you've come, become accustomed to living. You buy more than you can afford. But you're fattening yourself up for the day of rendering, the day when you're going to pay, the day of slaughter. And then he closes in verse 6 by saying, and you've condemned, you've murdered the, ju- the just. He does not resist you. Basically, you're mowing everybody down who gets in your way so that you can get whatever you want, murdering the just. You know why there are so many abortions? Whenever people want to talk about abortion and, and the killing of innocent children, it always becomes, yeah, but well, how about rape or incest or the life and health of a mother? Well, take that off the table because 99% of all abortions happen because people don't want to spend the money it takes to raise a child. It's as simple as that. And so... Innocent babies being killed so that somebody can have a little bit more stuff. I'd rather own a boat someday, so I'm going to destroy this child. And all kinds of people don't survive because of the greed of other people. And and so he's painting this horrible picture here of the condemnation that God calls out to those who are blessed And instead of using those blessings to bring good into people's lives and into their own life, they're being destroyed and choking on their own excessiveness. And and they're just taking whatever they can get and taking advantage wherever they can. Now, I think every one of us has some area of our life where we just have to go, "Uh uh-oh, yep. I mean, I don't care if you collect Barbie dolls. Any, why do you collect anything? I mean, I have baseball cards I haven't looked at in 40 years, but, oh, they're worth more now than they are then. Yeah, and sometimes I'll pull some of them out, and they're all stuck together and everything, and it's like I have autographs of baseball players that no one's ever heard of, and I look at it, and I'm not even sure who signed it. Every one of us is prone to like, yeah, but I have a lot of them. That makes it cool. I have a bunch of them. 
You've been in people's houses where the walls are just lined with stuff. You, do you really want to live in a cheesy thrift store? I mean, is that, is that what feels good to you? Probably not. But on a big scale or on a little scale, so often our stuff comes in and controls our life. Now, I don't, I'm not trying to make you feel bad, as we'll see. There is a more positive point coming. But I'll give you something to think about. Our whole nation, and in fact the world, is basically living under the principles of these first six verses and is going to face judgment because of it. How did this economic crash happen? It happened because people just accumulated more and more. It was all that greed. It was that desire to get ahead, to do more, to increase things. And so what did we do? We spent money we didn't have. And the truth is, our government still wants us to do that. They still are trying to get us to maintain. Now, I don't know if you've checked the figures lately. Um, you know, when you look at the government's debt, our government right now owes about $13 trillion. But, no, oh, that's okay, because we can pay part of it. But a deficit, the national deficit, is the difference between what we are spending and what we are collecting in taxes and other revenue. So a deficit's really a problem. Now, a year and a half ago, when we uh, elected a new president, our deficit in the U.S. was about $445 billion. And that's obscene. That's just sickening to be in that kind of debt. But in a year and a half, we've added a trillion dollars to that, we're over $1.4 trillion deficit, and even the people who are in control of the government are predicting in the next 10 years a deficit of $9 trillion. And you go, well, you know, trillion here, trillion there, nine trillion, what's the big deal? Do you understand what a trillion is? Do you understand how big that really is. We, we go, well, you know, I know a million's six zeros, a billion's nine zeros, a trillion's 12 zeros. What's a few zeros? Well, I did the math just to give you a picture of how, of what we have, what has been done in our name. And this is just for the nation. Our state alone has a huge deficit as well, and, and the other states do too. But one, okay, think in terms of seconds. If you're counting $1 bills, if you keep counting really steady, you could probably count $1 a second. I've known some people who could go a little faster than that. But basically, with no break, counting dollar bills. So how long would it take you to count out a million $1 bills? Um, it would take you 1.65 weeks to count 1 million. Now, what if you were going to count a billion dollars? How much is that? We see that number thrown around like it's nothing, chump change. Well, counting out a billion dollars would take you 31 years, 8 months, and 15 days. That's a while. <laughs> That's a, most of your working life. So a trillion dollars, that which we've gone in the hole over the last year and a half, a trillion dollars in seconds is 31,710 years. Wow. And, oh yeah, we're going to have nine more of those. No problem. Something's got to give. This is insane. And, and, you know, if you stacked them up, by the way, if you took just a trillion dollars and made a stack of it, it would go up 
67,000 and some miles. The deficit by the end of 2011, you could make a stack of $1 bills to the moon with the money that we will not bring in that we will spend. Now, how does this kind of insanity happen? And you go, boy, somebody's got to run for office. Somebody's got to fix this. Hey, good luck. I mean, if you have money, if you have this kind of money, you could easily pay for our sanctuary expansion. But <laughs> the last presidential election, you know, the winner of the election spent $650 million. And a lot of that was your tax dollars, by the way. The loser, John McCain, spent $250 million trying to be president. I don't know what's stupider, spending $650 million to win or spending $250 million to lose. But it's like, this is crazy. How in the world would anybody even get? Money is driving the whole thing. It's all this power deal. And so we live in that kind of an environment. This week, we're going to be voting in the primary for somebody to be the governor of California. Now, it's a nice job to be the governor of California. It pays about $200,000 a year. Um, but like Meg Whitman, who's very wealthy and was running for governor, has already pledged $150 million of her own money to get a, a $200,000 a year job. Arnold doesn't even pick up his paycheck from it. It's like, it's not worth going out of my way for. And then Poisoner, who's running against her, has already written a $15 million check for his own campaign, and he is expected to spend $200 million. So it's like, whoa, this is crazy. And what is, why do people do this? Why is power that important? Now, having said that and done that and read this, you just, I should just dismiss you. And you'll feel like, oh, man, what? And what does this have to do with James? We're trying to learn to live responsibly, and you're dumping all this stuff on us, and you're going, what your government is doing at a macro level, you are doing on a micro level, because so often we do spend money that we shouldn't and don't have and don't need, and we collect things, and is there hope? Now, James is talking to Christians, and what he is saying is, there's a perspective that you need to have on this. Now, Never would God condone sticking your head in the sand and not looking at the problems. And so James is saying, this is the way the world is. You guys are victims of a bunch of corrupt power brokers, and God gets it. And he hears that, and he will judge that, and he sees what's going on. And so he's acknowledging that, but then he says, but here's what you guys need to do, beginning with verse 7. Therefore, on the basis of all this overwhelming information, therefore, he says, be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain? He goes, don't get ahead of yourself. It's going to be okay. God is going to return. Jesus Christ is coming back. So he says, be patient. The word there for patient is the Greek word makrothumia. And macro means long or large. And, and thumia is a word that they usually used for passion. But it, it's really a word that means to breathe deep. And so he's gone, 
take a breath. Calm down, catch your breath. I know that, you know, after you start thinking about things, you're just overwhelmed and you're starting to hyperventilate. He goes, hang in there. Notice how a farmer realizes he's expecting a miracle. For, for you to be able to plant a field and have it grow, there are certain things that have to happen, and, and rain is a part of that. You have to do your job, but God has to make the rain come, or a whole year is wasted. And there's that early rain that happens that loosens up the soil before planting, and there's that latter rain that comes as a little bit before harvest to freshen things up. James says, the Lord's coming back. So calm down, catch your breath, don't freak out, you know, just be patient and realize that God's in the equation and that he knows what he's doing. And so he says, yeah, I see this corruption. It's wrong and it should be called for what it is. But for you, there's a rescue program. And understand this, none of that's going to be completely fixed. Not that you shouldn't work on it, but none of that's going to be fixed until the Lord returns. So get the perspective, take a deep breath, and get a perspective that recognizes God. He's coming. He's in control. Now, continuing in verse 8, he says, you also be patient. Again, same word. And he says, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Again, the coming of the Lord. But this time, he says, after reminding us to be patient, he says, establish your hearts. That is, stabilize who you are. Get yourself anchored. Make yourself solid. See, the problem with life is, I am surrounded by people that I can't control. From my family, to my local government, to my state, to the federal, to the world. The truth is, man, there's things that affect me that I can't control. But he says, take a deep breath, God's coming back. And then he says, establish your heart. You worry about you. You get yourself in a healthy place. I can't control what anyone else does with their riches, but I can certainly focus on what I can do, what my role can be, where I can help, how I can handle my own excess and use it and bless others with it and be generous to others. I can't change the world, but I can change me. And so he says, after you take a breath, take a deep cleansing breath, he goes, now work on you. Because ultimately, it's the heart that causes the problem. And you just don't get to fix other people's hearts, but you can work on your own. And an awful lot of the times, it's easy for me to focus on other people's problems because I don't want to think about my own. And so I always find somebody who's much worse than I am. But the Lord would say, I have given you you to work on. And for me, it's a full-time job to try to fix what's messed up in me. And I'm trying to get the beam out of my eye rather than specialize on taking specks out of other people's eyes. So he says, yes, I see corruption. I see that you're a victim of it. I see what's going on. I'm not denying it. I'm not putting my head in the sand. But you take a breath and now begin to work on you. Make sure your heart is in the right place. And then he says next, 
Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Again, the Lord's returning. He's coming back, and he's going to judge, and he's going to fix everything. But he says, for you, here's what you can do. Be patient. Take a breath. Get your own heart in a good place. And now he says, don't grumble with other people or among yourselves. That word there for grumble is a word that means to, well, it's, it's a word that refers to, the root word is a word that means to be in a strait, S-T-R-A-I-T, a narrow place. And what this word means, and, and usually or often we do this by grumbling, but really what he's saying is don't put pressure on each other with this stuff. Don't constantly dwell on what's going on that you can't control. Focus your attention on what you can control. Now, with me you know, today talking to you about just our basic economics that you hear about every day and what's going on in our government, believe me, if you want to focus on what's going on in our nation and in the world, there's a lot to be worried about. No problem. And some of you are already bummed because I'm like talking about this stuff and you're like, oh, I don't want to hear it. You know, I just want some feel-good stuff. That's it. Next week, I'm just going to stay home and watch Joel Osteen. He never talks about this stuff. But, and there may be a day when talking, listening to Joel Osteen might be the best thing for you. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're on the mat at the count of nine, go ahead and get yourself pumped up with some more. Well, I shouldn't say artificial. Just some enthusiasm, okay? But, oh well. Um, but here's the thing. James is just saying, why are you making each other tense? You know how when you talk about how bad things are, it just makes everybody feel more pressure? And sometimes we just want to, to focus on what's wrong. And so from our own family situation, if you're nervous about the finances, so you constantly feel like you need to talk about it some more, like it just changed since yesterday, or if you feel like somebody in your life isn't doing what they ought to do, you know, you feel like your kids aren't motivated enough to do their best in school, and now here you're afraid they're going to flunk out of kindergarten, and then they'll never have a job, and they'll do, you know, he's gone, you know what, it doesn't help to put pressure on each other. It doesn't help to dwell on the problems. Don't deny the problems, but don't live your life there. Don't allow yourself to be tangled up in it because if you put pressure on each other, it'll only make it worse. It'll never fix anything. The Lord's coming back. There's no reason for any of us to be under pressure about anything that's going on in our lives because the Lord's coming back. He's going to return, and he's the only one who can fix it. Hey, if being stressed would fix this stuff, I would say, yeah, let's talk each other into being as stressed as we can be. But sometimes you just have to turn off the TV. You just have to put down the magazine. You just have to quit reading every forwarded email that you get and just go, you know what? I'm feeling pressured, and I'm making people pressured by hitting forward. And so recognize the Lord's... The Lord's near. It's okay. It's going to be all right. Nothing is at stake in the big picture. And so, you know, James tells them that in light of that. Don't, don't be pressuring each other. And then verse 10, he says, My brothers, take the prophets. Please. No. 
Take the prophets, who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Those guys just said what God told them to say. They knew what their calling was, and they did that faithfully, and they knew that they would suffer because of it. Now, there are people who have a calling to attack and to confront problems and issues that are going on in the world. If that's you and you're called to be that prophet, that's great. But he's saying, you know what? Focus on what your calling is. Put your attention on where you can contribute instead of focusing on everything that's not right and, and just burning up your energy doing things that aren't going to help anyway. And then finally he says, indeed, we count them blessed who endure. They hung in there, and we admire that. You've heard of the perseverance of Job. We talk about the patience of Job. I don't see much in the book of Job that shows that he was all that patient. Um, but he ultimately learned patience by how the story ended, as God blessed him. But he did hang in there, and he didn't compromise, at least, although he was mad at God. But he says, And you've seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Basically what he's saying is you know how this thing winds up. You know what's going to happen ultimately. And that's why we can still get up in the morning. That's why what we know doesn't have to overwhelm us. Because we know the end. If Job had known how his story was going to turn out, it would have been much easier. He didn't. But he found out, and then he got to tell his story. And, and it was probably the oldest book written in the Bible, and it still serves as an example to us and as a lesson to us. You'll notice there in verse 11 where it says, and seeing the end intended by the Lord. Notice that intended by is in italics. It's not in the original. Um, a better, more accurate, I think, translation would be to leave that out and to say, you know, You've heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end, the Lord. Because he's been talking about the fact that he's going to return, looking for that return of Christ to fix and repair everything. And so he's saying, you saw what happened? And that's what happened to Job. By the way, Job wrestled with his problems, with his questions. His so-called friends were trying to help him talk through it, and it did nothing but make matters worse until God showed up. And when God showed up, Job, who had been saying, I wish God would show up, man. I'd tell him a thing or two. I want to have an argument with God. I want to debate my case. And God showed up, and Job goes, never mind. <laughs> God. Now, with all of this, what do we draw from it? What, what can we learn from, from this? The truth is that for every one of us, there are difficult situations in our lives. Every one of us are victims of mistreatment in one way or another. Every one of us gets ripped off. Every one of us gets undervalued and underpaid. Every one of us is disrespected. And we're all victims. And maybe it's at your job, the way your boss treats you. Maybe it's at home, the way your kids or your spouse treats you. Maybe it's with your friends who disrespect you and take advantage of you. Maybe it is on a more global scale what's going on in our world that's affecting you, and you're, you're paying the price of that. Understand this. God totally gets that. 
And he acknowledges it. He doesn't hide from it. And he doesn't try to put a spin on it. He goes, yeah, this happens, and God's going to judge anyone who lives their life this way. But then he says, but what can you do? You're not the judge. We saw that earlier in chapter 4. You're not the one who can fix all of this. So should you just feel overwhelmed, or should you realize the Lord's going to come back and fix this? The end of all this is God, and, and that's good. And his hand is in things a lot more than you often acknowledge or realize. So he says, take a deep breath. Just calm down a little bit. Don't freak out. And then he goes, establish your heart. Don't you worry about getting your own stability and maturity and consistency and discipline. Take care of your own place, your own spot in the world. Take care of your home, your family, your, those around you, opportunities that God gives you. And he says, quit putting pressure on other people. You don't need to do that. Take advantage of the examples of those who just did what God called them to do. And ultimately, at the end, like for Job, God, he's there. He'll always be there. And so don't go into denial and live on a roller coaster of between denial and sheer terror. But instead, acknowledge, yeah, God calls it what it is. He speaks the truth. But at the end is a God who is also going to fix everything that's wrong. So don't be all depressed and freaked out. Don't give up. Don't feel like, oh, there's no use. I can't do anything. No, you can do certain things. And so you do what you can. And that's why we say, hey, on election day, make sure you vote. And that's something that you can do. Um, is it going to change things globally? That's God's problem. But, you know, you have certain obligations. And once you've done that, you've pretty much done all that you can do in those kinds of areas. But you have a whole life, a heart that you can establish. You have a pattern of living that you can create for yourself. And it's a pattern of not having too much, not hoarding, making sure that you share. You're more than fair to everyone where you have opportunities. That's something that you can do. And when you've done that, you should be able to sleep well at night, knowing that, you know what, I'm doing what God wants me to do. I'm trying to be the person that he wants me to be. And so that's what James is saying. Throughout this whole thing, he's been telling us, don't be proud, don't flip out over things that go wrong, don't think that you can control everyone else, stop arguing with everyone. And now he goes, hey, I get it. Life is tough, and people can be really bad, but the Lord's going to return. And at the end, God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are sovereign and in control, and that you are merciful, as James says, that you are compassionate and, and merciful. You're gracious and loving, and, and you're going to last longer than everything else that we ever collect or care about. Help us to see you in your proper place, to do what you call us to do. So, Lord, thank you for your word, for these reminders that we desperately need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.